For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude chapter 4. Attempts have been made to escape the obvious force of this verse by substituting a different translation. The Revised Version gives, But there are certain men crept in privily, even they who were of old written of beforehand unto this condemnation. But this altered translation by no means gets rid of that which is so distasteful to our sensibilities. The question arises, where were these of old written of beforehand? Certainly not in the Old Testament, for nowhere is there any reference there to wicked men creeping into Christian assemblies. If written of be the best translation of pographo, the reference can only be to the book of the divine decrees. So, whichever alternative be selected, there can be no evading the fact that certain men are, before of old, marked out by God unto condemnation. Revelation 13.8 And all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, that is the Antichrist, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Compare Revelation 17.8 Here then is a positive statement affirming that there are those whose names were not written in the book of life. Because of this they shall render allegiance to and bow down before the Antichrist. Here then are no less than ten passages which most plainly imply or expressly teach the fact of reprobation. They affirm that the wicked are made for the day of evil, that God fashions some vessels unto dishonor, and by his eternal decree objectively fits them unto destruction that they are like brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, being of old ordained unto this condemnation. Therefore, in the face of these scriptures, we unhesitatingly affirm, after many years of careful and prayerful study of the subject, that the word of God unquestionably teaches both predestination and reprobation, or, to use the words of Calvin, eternal election is God's predestination of some to salvation and others to destruction. Having thus stated the doctrine of reprobation as it is presented in Holy Writ, let us now mention one or two important considerations to guard it against abuse and prevent the reader from making any unwarranted deductions. First, the doctrine of reprobation does not mean that God purposed to take innocent creatures, make them wicked, and then damn them. Scripture says God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Ecclesiastes 7.29 God has not created sinful creatures in order to destroy them, for God is not to be charged with the sin of his creatures. The responsibility and criminality is man's. God's decree of reprobation contemplated Adam's race as fallen, sinful, corrupt, guilty. From it God purposed to save as few as the monuments purpose to save a few as the monuments of his sovereign grace. The others he determined to destroy as the exemplification of his justice and severity. In determining to destroy these others, God did them no wrong. They had already fallen in Adam, their legal representative. They are therefore born with a sinful nature, and in their sins God leaves them. Nor can they complain. This is as they wish. They have no desire for holiness. They love darkness rather than light. Where then is there any injustice if God gives them up to their own heart's lust? Psalm 81, 12. Second, the doctrine of reprobation does not mean that God refuses to save those who earnestly seek salvation. The fact is that the reprobate have no longing for the Savior. They see in Him no beauty that they should desire Him. They will not come to Christ. Why then should God force them to? He turns away none who do come. Where then is the injustice of God for determining their just doom? None will be punished but for their iniquities. Where then is the supposed tyrannical cruelty of the divine procedure? Remember that God is the creator of the wicked, not of their wickedness. He is the author of their being, but not the infuser of their sin. God does not, as we have been slanderously reported to affirm, compel the wicked to sin as the rider spurs on an unwilling horse. 
God only says, in effect, that awful word, let them alone, Matthew fifteen fourteen. He needs only to slacken the reins of providential restraint and withhold the influence of saving grace, and apostate man will only too soon and too surely of his own accord fall by his iniquities. Thus, the decree of reprobation neither interferes with the bent of man's own fallen nature, nor serves to render him the less inexcusable. Third, the decree of reprobation in no wise conflicts with God's goodness. Though the non-elect are not the objects of his goodness in the same way or to the same extent as the elect are, yet are they not wholly excluded from a participation of it. They enjoy the good things of providence, temporal blessings, in common with God's own children, and very often to a higher degree. But how do they improve them? Does the temporal goodness of God lead them to repent? Nay, verily, they do but despise his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, and after their hardness and impenitency of heart, treasure up unto themselves wrath against the day of wrath. See Romans 2, 4, and 5. On what righteous ground, then, can they murmur against not being the objects of God's benevolence in the endless ages yet to come? Moreover, if it did not clash with God's mercy and kindness to leave the entire body of the fallen angels, see Second Peter 2.4, under the guilt of their apostasy, still less can it clash with the divine perfections to leave some of fallen mankind in their sins and punish them for them. Finally, let us interpose this necessary caution. It is utterly impossible for any of us during the present life to ascertain who are among the reprobate. We must not now so judge any man, no matter how wicked he may be. The vilest sinner may, for all we know, be included in the election of grace and be one day quickened by the Spirit of grace. Our marching orders are plain, and woe be unto us if we disregard them. Preach the gospel to every creature. When we have done so, our hands are clean. If men refuse to heed, their blood is on their own heads. Nevertheless, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are a savor of death unto death, and to the other we are a savor of life unto life. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. We must now consider a number of passages which are often quoted with the purpose of showing that God has not fitted certain vessels to destruction or ordained certain ones to condemnation. First, we cite Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? On this passage, we cannot do better than to quote from the comments of Augustus Toplady. This is a passage very frequently, but very idly insisted upon by Arminians, as if it were a hammer which would at one stroke crush the whole fabric to powder. But it so happens that the death here alluded to is neither spiritual nor eternal death, as is abundantly evident from the whole tenor of Ezekiel chapter 18. The death intended by the prophet is a political death, a death of national prosperity, tranquility, and security. The sense of the question is precisely this. What is it that makes you in love with captivity, banishment, and civil ruin? Abstainance from the worship of images might, as a people, exempt you from these calamities and once more render you a respectable nation, O Israel. Are the miseries of public devastation so alluring as to attract your determined pursuit? Why will ye die, die as the house of Israel, and considered as a political body? Thus did the prophet argue the case, at the same time adding, for I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. This imports first the national captivity of the Jews, added nothing to the happiness of God. Second, if the Jews turned from idolatry and flung away their images, they should not die in a foreign, hostile country, but live peaceably in their own land and enjoy their liberties as an independent people. To the above quote from Topletting, we may add, Political death must be what is in view in Ezekiel 18:31 and 32 for the simple but sufficient reason that they were already spiritually dead. Matthew 25, verse 41 is often quoted to show that God has not fitted certain vessels to destruction. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
This is, in fact, one of the principal verses relied upon to disprove the doctrine of reprobation. But we submit that the emphatic word here is not for, but devil. This verse, see the context, sets forth the severity of the judgment which awaits the lost. In other words, the above scripture expresses the awfulness of the everlasting fire rather than the subjects of it. If the fire be prepared for the devil and his angels, then how intolerable it will be. If the place of eternal torment into which the damned shall be cast is the same as that in which God's arch enemy will suffer, how dreadful must that place be? Again, if God has chosen only certain ones to salvation, why are we told that God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent? Acts 17.30 That God commandeth all men to repent is but the enforcing of his righteous claims as the moral governor of the world. How could he do less, seeing that all men everywhere have sinned against him? Furthermore, that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent argues the universality of creature responsibility. But this scripture does not declare that it is God's pleasure to grant repentance, Acts 5.31, to all men everywhere. That the Apostle Paul did not believe God gave repentance to every soul is clear from his words. To Timothy, the second epistle, second chapter, 25th verse, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Again, we are asked, if God has ordained only certain ones... If God has ordained only certain ones unto eternal life, then why do we read that he will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? 1 Timothy 2.4 The reply is that the words all and all men, like the term world, are often used in a general and relative sense. Let the reader carefully examine the following passages. Mark 1.5 John 6.45 John 8.2 Acts 21:28, Acts 22:15, Second Corinthians 3:2, for example, and he will find full proof of our assertion. First Timothy 2:4 cannot teach that God wills the salvation of all mankind, or otherwise all mankind would be saved. What his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Job 23:13. Again, we're asked, does not Scripture declare again and again that God is no respecter of persons? We answer it certainly does, and God's electing grace proves it. The seven sons of Jesse, though older and physically superior to David, are passed by, while the young shepherd boy is exalted to Israel's throne. The scribes and lawyers pass unnoticed, and ignorant fishermen are chosen to be the apostles of the Lamb. Divine truth is hidden from the wise and prudent, and is revealed to babes instead. The great majority of the wise and noble are ignored, while the weak, the base, the despised, the called, and saved. Harlots and publicans are sweetly compelled to come into the gospel feast, while self-righteous Pharisees are suffered to perish in their immaculate morality. Truly, God is no respecter of persons, or he would not have saved me. That the doctrine of reprobation is a hard saying to the carnal mind is readily acknowledged, yet is it any harder than that of eternal punishment? That it is clearly taught in Scripture we have sought to demonstrate, and it is not for us to pick and choose from the truths revealed in God's Word. Let those who are inclined to receive those doctrines which commend themselves to their judgment, and who reject those which they cannot fully understand, Remember these scathing words of our Lord's, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Luke 24:25. Fools because slow of heart, slow of heart, not dull of head. Once more we would avail ourselves of the language of Calvin. Quote, but as I have hitherto only recited such things as are delivered without any obscurity or ambiguity in the scriptures, let persons who hesitate not to brand with ignominy those oracles of heaven beware what kind of opposition they make, for if they pretend ignorance with a desire to be commended for their modesty, what greater instance of pride can be conceived than to oppose one little word to the authority of God? As it appears otherwise to me, or I would rather not meddle with this subject, but if they openly censure, 
What will they gain by their puny attempts against heaven? Their petulance indeed is no novelty, for in all ages there have been impious and profane men who have virulently opposed this doctrine. But they shall feel the truth of what the Spirit long ago declared by the mouth of David, that God is clear when he judgeth, Psalm 51, 4. David obliquely hints at the madness of men who display such excessive presumption amidst their insignificance as not only to dispute against God, but to arrogate to themselves the power of condemning Him. In the meantime, he briefly suggests that God is unaffected by all the blasphemies which they discharge against heaven, but that He dissipates the mists of calumny and illustriously displays His righteousness, our faith also being founded on the divine word, and therefore superior to all the world, from its exaltation looks down with contempt upon those mists. That the quote from Calvin. In closing this chapter, we propose to quote from the writings of some of the standard theologians since the days of the Reformation, not that we would buttress our own statements by an appeal to human authority, however venerable or ancient, but in order to show that what we have advanced in these pages is no novelty of the 20th century, no heresy of the latter days, but instead a doctrine which has been definitely formulated and commonly taught by many of the students of Holy Writ. Quote, Predestination we call the decree of God, by which he has determined in himself what he would have to become of every individual of mankind. For they are not all created with a similar destiny, but eternal life is foreordained for some, and eternal damnation for others. Every man, therefore, being created for one or the other of these ends, we say he is predestinated either to life or to death. From Calvin's Institutes, circa 1536 A.D., Book 3, Chapter 21, entitled Eternal Election, or God's Predestination of Some to Salvation and of Others to Destruction. We ask our readers to mark well the above language. A perusal of it should show that what the present writer has advanced in this chapter is not hyper-Calvinism, but real Calvinism, pure and simple. Our purpose in making this remark is to show that those who, not acquainted with John Calvin's writings, in their ignorance condemn as ultra-Calvinism that which is simply a reiteration of what Calvin himself taught, a reiteration because that prince of theologians, as well as his humble debtor, have both found this doctrine in the word of God itself. Martin Luther, in his most excellent work, The Bondage of the Will, wrote, All things whatsoever arise from and depend upon the divine appointments whereby it was preordained who should receive the word of life and who should disbelieve it, who should be delivered from their sins and who should be hardened in them, who should be justified and who should be condemned. This is the very truth which raises the doctrine of free will from its foundations, to wit, that God's eternal love of some men and hatred of others is immutable and cannot be reversed." Unquote. John Fox, whose Book of Martyrs was once the best-known work in the English language, alas, that it is not so today when Roman Catholicism is sweeping upon us like a great destructive tidal wave, wrote, Predestination is the eternal decrement of God, purposed before in himself what should befall all men, either to salvation or damnation. The larger Westminster Catechism, 1688, adopted by the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, declares, God, by an eternal and immutable decree out of his mere love for the praise of his glorious grace to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life, and the means thereof, and also according to his sovereign power, and the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleases, hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath, to be for their sin inflicted to the praise of the glory of his justice. John Bunyan, author of The Pilgrim's Progress, wrote a whole volume on reprobation. From it we make one brief extract. 
Reprobation is before the person cometh into the world, or hath done good or evil. This is evidenced by Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Here you find twain in their mother's womb, and both receiving their destiny, not only before they had done good or evil, but before they were in a capacity to do it, they being yet unborn. Their destiny, I say, the one, Jacob, unto, the other not unto, Esau, the blessing of eternal life. The one elect, Jacob, the other reprobate, Esau. The one chosen, the other refused. In his book, The Sighs from Hell, John Bunyan also wrote, They that do continue to reject and slight the word of God are such, for the most part, as are ordained to be damned. Commenting on Romans chapter 9, verse 22, Bunyan, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Jonathan Edwards writes in his writings, volume 4, page 306, in 1743, he says, How awful doth the majesty of God appear in the dreadfulness of his anger! This we may learn to be one end of the damnation of the wicked. Augustus Toplady, author of Rock of Ages and other sublime hymns, wrote, God from all eternity decreed to leave some of Adam's fallen posterity in their sins and to exclude them from the participation of Christ and his benefits. And again, we with the scriptures assert that there is a predestination of some particular persons to life for the praise of the glory of divine grace, and also a predestination of other particular persons to death for the glory of divine justice, which death of punishment they shall inevitably undergo, and that justly on account of their sins. George Whitfield, that stalwart of the 18th century, used by God in blessing to so many, wrote, Without doubt, the doctrine of election and reprobation must stand or fall together. I frankly acknowledge I believe the doctrine of reprobation, that God intends to give saving grace through Jesus Christ only to a certain number, and that the rest of mankind after the fall of Adam being justly left of God to continue in sin will at last suffer that eternal death which is its proper wages. Romans 9.22 Fitted to destruction. After declaring this phrase admits of two interpretations, Dr. Hodge, a widely read commentator on Romans, says, The other interpretation assumes that the reference is to God and that the Greek word for fitted has its full participle force, prepared by God for destruction. This, says Dr. Hodge, is adopted not only by the majority of Augustinians, but also by many Lutherans. Were it necessary, we are prepared to give quotations from the writings of Wycliffe, Huss, Ridley, Hooper, Cranmer, Usher, John Trapp, Thomas Goodwin, Thomas Manton, chaplain to Cromwell, John Owen, Witsius, John Gill, predecessor of Charles Spurgeon, and a host of others. We mention this simply to show that many of the most eminent saints in bygone days, the men most widely used of God, held and taught this doctrine which is so bitterly hated in these last days when men will no longer endure sound doctrine, hated of men of lofty pretension, but who, notwithstanding their boasted orthodoxy and much advertised piety, are not worthy to unfasten the shoes of the faithful and fearless servants of God of other days. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11:33 through 36. Of him, his will is the origin of all existence. Through or by him, he is the creator and controller of all. To him, all things promote his glory in their final end. Chapter 6, The Sovereignty of God in Operation. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans 11:36. Has God foreordained everything that comes to pass? Has He decreed that 
what is, was to have been? In the final analysis, this is only another way of asking, is God now governing the world and everyone and everything in it? If God is governing the world, then is he governing it according to a definite purpose or aimlessly and at random? If he is governing it according to some purpose, then when was that purpose made? <coughs> is God continually changing his purpose and making a new one every day, or was his purpose formed from the beginning? Are God's actions like ours regulated by the change of circumstances, or are they the outcome of his eternal purpose? If God formed a purpose before man was created, then is that purpose going to be executed according to his original designs, and is God now working toward that end? What saith the scriptures? They declare God is one who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1. 11. Few who read this book are likely to call into question the statement that God knows and foreknows all things, but perhaps many would hesitate to go further than this. Yet, is it not self-evident that if God foreknows all things, he has also foreordained all things? Is it not clear that God foreknows what will be because he has decreed what shall be? God's foreknowledge is not the cause of events, rather are events the effects of his eternal purpose. When God has decreed a thing shall be, he knows it will be. In the nature of things, there cannot be anything known as what shall be unless it is certain to be. And there is nothing certain to be unless God has ordained it shall be. Take the crucifixion of our Lord as an illustration. On this point, the teaching of Scripture is as clear as a sunbeam. Christ, as the Lamb whose blood was to be shed, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20 Having then ordained the slaying of the Lamb, God knew he would be led to the slaughter, and therefore made it known accordingly through Isaiah the prophet. The Lord Jesus was not delivered up by the God foreknowing it before it took place, but by his fixed counsel and foreordination. Acts 2.23 Foreknowledge of future events, then, is founded upon God's decrees. Hence, if God foreknows everything that is to be, it is because he has determined in himself from all eternity everything which will be. Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world, Acts 15.8, which shows that God has a plan, that God did not begin his work at random or without a knowledge of how, his plan would succeed. God created all things. This truth no one who bows to the testimony of holy writ will question, nor would any such be prepared to argue that the work of creation was an accidental work. God first formed the purpose to create, and then put forth the creative act in fulfillment of that purpose. All real Christians will readily adopt the words of the psalmist and say, O Lord, how manifold are thy works in wisdom! Hast thou made them all? Will any who endorse what we have just said deny that God purposed to govern the world which he created? Surely the creation of the world was not the end of God's purpose concerning it. Surely he did not determine simply to create the world, to create the world and place man in it and then leave both to their fortunes. It must be apparent that God had some great end or ends in view worthy of his infinite perfections, and that he is now governing the world so as to accomplish these ends. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart, to all generations. Psalm 33, 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Many other passages might be adduced to show that God has many counsels concerning this world and concerning man, and that all these counsels will most surely be realized. It is only when they are thus regarded that we can intelligently appreciate the prophecies of Scripture. In prophecy, the mighty God has condescended to take us into the secret chamber of His eternal counsels and make known to us what He has purposed to do in the future. The hundreds of prophecies which are found in the Old and New Testaments are not so much predictions of what will come to pass as they are revelations to us of what God has purposed shall come to pass. 
Do we know from prophecy that this present age, like all preceding ones, is to end with a full demonstration of man's failure? Do we know that there is to be a universal turning away from the truth, a general apostasy? Do we know that the Antichrist is to be manifested, and that he will succeed in deceiving the whole world? Do we know that Antichrist's career will be cut short and an end made of man's miserable attempts to govern himself by the return of God's Son? Then it is all because these and a hundred other things are included among God's eternal decrees, now made known to us in the sure word of prophecy, and because it is infallibly certain that all God has purposed must shortly come to pass. Revelation 1, 1. What then was the great purpose for which this world and the human race were created? The answer of Scripture is, The Lord hath made all things for himself. Proverbs 16, 4. And again, Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Revelation 4.11 The great end of creation was the manifestation of God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. But it was by man, originally made in His own image and likeness, that God designed chiefly to manifest His glory. But how was the great Creator to be glorified by man? Before his creation, God foresaw the fall of Adam and the consequent ruin of his race. Therefore, he could not have designed that man should glorify him by continuing in a state of innocency. Accordingly, we are taught that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be the Savior of fallen men. The redemption of sinners by Christ was no mere afterthought of God. It was no expediency to meet an unlooked-for calamity. No, it was a divine provision and therefore when man fell, he found mercy walking hand in hand with justice. From all eternity God designed that our world should be the stage on which he would display his manifold grace and wisdom in the redemption of lost sinners, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 3.11. For the accomplishment of this glorious design, God has governed the world from the beginning and will continue it to the end. It has been well said, quote, We can never understand the providence of God over our world unless we regard it as a complicated machine having 10,000 parts directed in all its operations to one glorious end the display of the manifold wisdom of God in the salvation of the church, that is, the called out ones. Everything else down here is subordinated to this central purpose. It was by the apprehension of this basic truth that the apostle, moved by the Holy Spirit, was led to write, Wherefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal Glory, 2 Timothy 2.10. What we would now contemplate is the operation of God's sovereignty in the government of this world. In regard to the operation of God's government over the material world, little needs now be said. In previous chapters, we have shown that inanimate matter and all irrational creatures are absolutely subject to their Creator's pleasure. While we freely admit that the material world appears to be governed by laws that are stable and more or less uniform in their operations, yet Scripture, history, and observation compel us to recognize the fact that God suspends these laws and acts apart from them whenever it pleaseth Him to do so. In sending His blessings or judgments upon His creatures, He may cause the sun itself to stand still, and the stars in their courses to fight for His people, as in Judges chapter 5. He may send or withhold the early and the latter rains according to the dictates of His own infinite wisdom. He may smite with plague or bless with health. In short, being God, being absolute sovereign, He is bound and tied by no laws of nature but governs the material world as seemeth him best. But what of God's government of the human family? And what does Scripture reveal in regard to the operations of his external governmental administration over mankind? To what extent and by what influences does God control the sons of men? We shall divide our answer to this question into two parts and consider, first, God's method of dealing with the righteous, his elect, and then, 
His method of dealing with the wicked. God's method of dealing with the righteous. 1. God exerts upon his own elect a quickening influence or power. By nature they are spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins, and their first need is spiritual life, for except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, John 3.3. 3. In the new birth, God brings us from death unto life, John 5.24. He imparts to us his own nature. 2 Peter 1, 4. He delivers us from the power of darkness and translates us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Colossians 1, 13. Now, manifestly, we could not do this ourselves, for we were without strength. Romans 5, 6. Hence, it is written, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 20. In the new birth, we are made partakers of the divine nature, a principle, a seed, a life is communicated to us, which is born of the Spirit, and therefore is Spirit, is born of the Holy Spirit, and therefore is holy. Apart from this divine and holy nature which is imparted to us at the new birth, it is utterly impossible for any man to generate a real spiritual impulse, form a spiritual concept, think a spiritual thought, understand spiritual things, still less engage in spiritual works. Without holiness no man shall see the Lord. But the natural man has no desire for holiness, and the provision that God has made he does not want. Will then a man pray for, seek for, strive after that which he dislikes? Surely not. If then a man does follow after that which by nature he cordially dislikes, if he does now love the one he once hated, it is because a miraculous change has taken place within him. A power outside of himself has operated upon him. A nature entirely different from his old one has been imparted to him. And hence it is written, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Such an one as we have just described has passed from death unto life, has been turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. See Acts 26.18 In no other way can the great change be accounted for. The new birth is very, very much more than simply shedding a few tears due to a temporary remorse over sin. It is far more than changing our course of life, the leaving off of bad habits and the substituting of good ones. It is something different from the mere cherishing and practicing of noble ideals. It goes infinitely deeper than coming forward to take some popular evangelist by the hand, signing a pledge card, or joining the church. The new birth is no mere turning over a new leaf, but is the inception and reception of a new life. It is no mere reformation, but a complete transformation. In short, the new birth is a miracle, the result of the supernatural operation of God. It is radical, revolutionary, lasting. Here, then, is the first thing in time which God does in His own elect. He lays hold of those who are spiritually dead and quickens them into newness of life. He takes up one who was shapen in iniquity and conceived in sin and conforms him to the image of his son. He seizes a captive of the devil and makes him a member of the household of faith. He picks up a beggar and makes him a joint heir with Christ. He comes to one who is full of enmity against him and gives him a new heart that is full of love for him. He stoops to one who by nature is a rebel and works in him both to will and to do of his good pleasure. By his irresistible power he transforms a sinner into a saint, an enemy into a friend, a slave of the devil into a child of God. Surely then we are moved to say, When all thy mercies, O my God, my wandering soul surveys, transported with the view I'm lost in wonder, love and praise. Number two. God exerts upon his own elect an energizing influence or power. The apostle prayed to God for the Ephesian saints that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened in order that, among other things, they might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Ephesians 1.18 And that they might be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 3.16. It is thus that the children of God are enabled to fight the good fight of faith and battle with the adverse forces which constantly war against them. 
in themselves they have no strength, they are but sheep, and sheep are about the most defenseless animals there are. But the promise is sure. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Isaiah 40:29. It is this energizing power that God exerts upon and within the righteous, which enables them to serve him acceptably, said the prophet of old. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. Micah 3, 8. And said our Lord to his apostles, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Acts 1, 8. And thus it is proved, for of these same men we read subsequently, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Acts 4, 33. So it was, too, with the Apostle Paul, and my speech, he says, and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 1 Corinthians 2, 4. But the scope of this power is not confined to service, for we read in 2 Peter 1, 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Hence it is that the various graces of the Christian character, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, are ascribed directly to God himself, being denominated the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. See also 2 Corinthians 8.16. Thirdly, God exerts upon his own elect a directing influence or power. Of old he led his people across the wilderness and directed their steps by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And today he still directs his saints, though now from within rather than from without. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Psalm 48:14. But he guides us by working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That he does so guide us is clear from the words of the Apostle in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Thus all ground for boasting is removed, and God gets all the glory. For with the prophet we have to say, Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us, for thou also hast wrought all our works in us. Isaiah 26:12. How true then that a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Proverbs 16:9. See also Psalm 65:4, Ezekiel 36:27. Fourthly, God exerts upon his own elect a preserving influence or power. Many are the scriptures which set forth this blessed truth. He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Psalm 97.10 For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 37.28 The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. Psalm 145.20 It is needless to multiply texts or to raise an argument at this point respecting the believer's responsibility and faithfulness, we can no more persevere without God preserving us than we can breathe when God ceases to give us breath. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1.5 Compare also 1 Chronicles 18.6 It remains for us now to consider God's method of dealing with the wicked. In contemplating God's governmental dealings with the non-elect, we find that he exerts upon them a fourfold influence or power. We adopt the clear-cut divisions suggested by Dr. Rice. Firstly, God exerts upon the wicked a restraining influence by which they are prevented from doing what they are naturally inclined to do. A striking example of this is seen in Abimelech, king of the Gerar. Abraham came down to Gerar, and, fearful lest he might be slain on account of his wife, he instructed her to pose as his sister. Regarding her as an unmarried woman, Abimelech sent and took Sarah unto himself, and then we learn how God put forth his power to protect her honor. 
And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Genesis 26. Had not God interposed, Abimelech would have grievously wronged Sarah. But the Lord restrained him and allowed him not to carry out the intentions of his heart. A similar instance is found in connection with Joseph and his brethren's treatment of him. Owing to Jacob's partiality for Joseph, his brethren hated him. And when they thought they had him in their power, they conspired against him to slay him. Genesis 37:18. But God did not allow them to carry out their evil designs. First he moved Reuben to deliver him out of their hands, and next he caused Judah to suggest that Joseph should be sold to the passing Ishmaelites who carried him down into Egypt. That it was God who thus restrained them is clear from the words of Joseph himself when some years later he made known himself to his brethren. Said he, So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. Genesis 45, 8. The restraining influence which God exerts upon the wicked was strikingly exemplified in the person of Balaam, the prophet hired by Balak to curse the Israelites. One cannot read the inspired narrative without discovering that, left to himself, Balaam had readily and certainly accepted the offer of Balak. How evidently God restrained the impulses of his heart is seen from his own acknowledgment. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Numbers 23, 8 and 20. Not only does God exert a restraining influence upon wicked individuals, but he does so upon whole peoples as well. A remarkable illustration of this is found in Exodus 34:24. For I will cast out the nations before thee, and enlarge thy borders, neither shall any man desire thy land, when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. Three times every male Israelite, at the command of God, left his home and inheritance and journeyed to Jerusalem to keep the feasts of the Lord. And in the above scripture we learn he promised them that while they were at Jerusalem, he would guard their unprotected homes by restraining the covetous designs and the desires of their heathen neighbors. Secondly, God exerts upon the wicked a softening influence, disposing them contrary to their natural inclinations to do that which will promote his cause. Above, we referred to Joseph's history as an illustration of God exerting a restraining influence upon the wicked. Let us note now his experiences in Egypt as exemplifying our assertion that God also exerts a softening influence upon the unrighteous. We are told that while he was in the house of Potiphar, the Lord was with Joseph, and his master saw the Lord was with him. And in consequence, Joseph found favor in his sight, and he made him overseer over his house. Genesis 39, 3 and 4. Later, when Joseph was unjustly cast into prison, we are told, But the Lord was with Joseph, and showed him mercy, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Genesis 39, 21. And in consequence of the prison keeper, showed him much kindness and honor. Finally, after his release from prison, we learn from Acts 7.10 that the Lord gave Joseph favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. An equally striking evidence of God's power to melt the hearts of his enemies was seen in Pharaoh's daughter's treatment of the infant Moses. The incident is well known. Pharaoh had issued an edict commanding the destruction of every male child of the Israelites. A certain Levite had a son born to him who, for three months, was kept hidden by his mother. No longer able to conceal the infant Moses, she placed him in an ark of bulrushes and laid him by the river's brink. The ark was discovered by none less than the king's daughter, who had come down to the river to bathe. But instead of heeding her father's wicked decree and casting the child into the river, we are told that she had compassion on him, Exodus 2.6. Accordingly, the young life was spared, and later Moses became the adopted son of this princess. God has access to the hearts of all men, and he softens or hardens them according to his sovereign purpose. The profane Esau swore vengeance upon his brother for the deception which he had practiced upon his father, Yet when next Esau met Jacob, instead of slaying him, we're told that he fell on his neck and kissed him. 
Genesis 32.4, Ahab, the weak and wicked consort of Jezebel, was highly enraged against Elijah the prophet, at whose word the heavens had been shut up for three years and a half. So angry was he against the one whom he regarded as his enemy, that, we are told, he searched for him in every nation and kingdom. And when he could not be found, he took an oath. 1 Kings 18.10 Yet, when they met, instead of killing the prophet, Ahab meekly obeyed Elijah's behest, and sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Verse 20 Again, Esther, the poor Jewess, is about to enter the presence chamber of the august Medio-Persian monarch, who which said she is not according to the law. Esther 4.16 She went in expecting to perish. But we are told she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter. Esther 5.2 Yet again, the boy Daniel is a captive in a foreign court. The king appointed a daily provision of meat and drink for Daniel and his fellows. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the allotted portion, and accordingly made known his purpose to his master, the prince of eunuchs. What happened? His master was a heathen, and feared the king. Did he turn then upon Daniel and angrily demand that his orders be promptly carried out? No. For we read, Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Daniel 1.9 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 A remarkable illustration of this is seen in Cyrus the heathen king of Persia. God's people were in captivity, but the predicted end of their captivity was almost reached. Meanwhile, the temple at Jerusalem lay in ruins, and, as we have said, the Jews were in bondage in a distant land. What hope was there, then, that the Lord's house would be rebuilt? Mark now what God did. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Ezra 1, 1 and 2. Cyrus, be it remembered, was a pagan, and as secular history bears witness, a very wicked man. Yet the Lord moved him to issue this edict, that his word through Jeremiah 70 years before might be fulfilled. A similar and further illustration is found in Ezra 7:27, where we find Ezra returning thanks for what God had caused King Artaxerxes to do in completing and beautifying the house which Cyrus had commanded to be erected. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. Ezra 7.27 Thirdly, God exerts upon the wicked a directing influence, so that good is made to result from their intended evil. Once more we revert to the story of Joseph as a case in point. In selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites, his brethren were actuated by cruel and heartless motives. Their object was to make away with him, and the passing of these traveling traders furnished an easy way out for them. To them, the act was nothing more than the enslaving of a noble youth for the sake of gain. But now observe how God was secretly working and overruling their wicked actions. Providence so ordered that these Ishmaelites passed by just in time to prevent Joseph being murdered for his brethren had already taken counsel together to put him to death. Further, these Ishmaelites were journeying to Egypt, which was the very country to which God had purposed to send Joseph, and he ordained that they should purchase Joseph just when they did. That the hand of God was in this incident, that it was something more than a fortunate coincidence, is clear from the words of Joseph to his brethren at a later date. God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Genesis 45.7 Another equally striking illustration of God directing the wicked is found in Isaiah 10.5 and 7. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff uh, in their hand is mine indignation. 
I will send him against a hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, and to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Unquote. Assyria's king had determined to be a world conqueror, to cut off nations, not a few, but God directed and controlled his military lust and ambition, and caused him to confine his attention to the conquering of the insignificant nation of Israel. Such a task was not in the proud king's heart. He meant it not so, but God gave him this charge, and he could do nothing but fulfill it. Compare also Judges chapter 7, verses 22. The supreme example of the controlling, directing influence which God exerts upon the wicked is the cross of Christ Jesus, with all its attending circumstances. If ever the superintending providence of God was witnessed, it was there. From all eternity God had predestined every detail of that event of all events. Nothing was left to chance or the caprice of man. God had decreed when and where and how his blessed Son was to die. Much of what he had purposed concerning the crucifixion had been made known through the Old Testament prophets, and in the accurate and literal fulfillment of these prophecies we have clear proof, full demonstration of the controlling and directing influence which God exerts upon the wicked. Not a thing occurred except as God had ordained it. And all that he had ordained took place exactly as he purposed. Had it been decreed and made known in Scripture that the Savior should be betrayed by one of his own disciples, by his familiar friend, to see Psalm 41.9, compare Matthew 26.50, then the apostle Judas is the one who sold him. Had it been decreed that the betrayer should receive for his awful perfidy thirty pieces of silver, then are the chief priests moved to offer him this very sum. Had it been decreed that this betrayal sum should be put to a particular use, namely the purchase of the potter's field, then the hand of God directs Judas to return the money to the chief priests, and so guided their counsel, Matthew 27, 7, that they did this very thing. Had it been decreed that there should be those who bore false witness against our Lord, Psalm 35:11, then accordingly such were raised up. Had it been decreed that the Lord of glory should be spat upon and scourged, Isaiah 56, then were there not found wanting those who were vile enough to do so. Had it been decreed that the Savior should be numbered with the transgressors, then unknown to himself, Pilate, directed by God, gave orders for his crucifixion, along with two thieves. Had it been decreed that vinegar and gall should be given him to drink while he hung upon the cross, then this decree of God was executed to the very letter. Had it been decreed that the heartless soldiers should gamble for his garments, then sure enough they did this very thing. Had it been decreed that not a bone of him should be broken, Psalm 34.20, then the controlling hand of God, which suffered the Roman soldier to break the legs of the thieves, prevented him from doing the same with our Lord. Ah, there were not enough soldiers in all the Roman legions. There were not sufficient demons in all the hierarchies of Satan to break one bone in the body of Christ. And why? Because the Almighty Sovereign had decreed that not a bone should be broken. Do we need to extend this paragraph any farther? Does not the accurate and literal fulfillment of all that Scripture had predicted in connection with the crucifixion demonstrate beyond all controversy that an almighty power was directing and superintending everything that was done on that day of days? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 
450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.